This is Bites of Good, a show where we explore how anyone can get involved in the world of technology, social good, and civic tech. My name is Samin, and this is the first episode in our new season focused on tech policy. These days, issues of equity, privacy, and power in technology regulation have come to the forefront of public concern. However, the world of technology policy can be extremely confusing. What is tech policy, and how can you get involved in it? To help us, we'll have guests from all walks of life, ranging from grassroots organizers like Stop LAPD's Hamid Khan, to academics like PhD student Leela Marie Hampton, and think tank founders like David Robinson of Upturn. Today, we have Andrew Sosa Sasanya and Ishan Sharma from the Day One Project, a platform to democratize the science and tech policymaking process in the United States. Through workshops, accelerator programs, and more, the Day One Project opens up the S&T policy space to the wider science, technology, and innovation community. Sosa and Ishan, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Sosa. I'm a technologist and scientist. Currently, I work as a science and technology policy analyst at the Day One Project. Yeah, and I'm Ishan. Uh, I'm an emerging tech fellow at the Federation of American Scientists and also a policy analyst at the Day One Project. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. So how did the both of you first get interested in, in science and tech policy? Well, college was the first time I started to really think deeply about the broader impacts of the scientific research I was doing and the frontier technologies that I was being exposed to in the classroom. I was just really waist deep in the technical details of fascinating things like condensed matter, artificial intelligence, robotics, space weather, all the really cool things. But I always wondered how they would change our lives for the better and for the worse. And so I was really quite alarmed at the dearth of like commentary around these technologies, especially in the political science circles uh, and the policy circles as well. And so that was especially prevalent to me with regards to militarized artificial intelligence uh, and what effect it would have on national security. So I ended up writing a whole thesis uh, for a year um, at the end of college on it. And so I saw how science and tech was changing the world with my own eyes. And that intersection with policy was especially fascinating to me. Yeah, and I'll just jump in as well. Um, I similarly saw how science and tech was changing the world uh, in college, but kind of through a different lens. Um, I have less of a technical background. I was My plan was to go to law school, uh, to try and make the world a better place, uh, classic idealism. I was coming off of um, time studying international human rights at the University of Oxford and completing this John Lewis Fellowship in Atlanta, um, with a career mindset of, you know, trying to make the world and the future of democracy and human rights a lot better. Um, and then in the last year of college, I discovered this entire world of tech, specifically surveillance tech experts in the unregulated global, globalized surveillance industry, um, that was really turning everything that I took for granted uh, about the future of democracy and human rights. Uh, and so I decided to push off uh, law school, take a gap year exploring this issue, of emerging tech and digital repression and authoritarianism um, and found my way to FAS where I had a chance to lead my own project on emerging tech and global security. Uh, and the rest is history. Wow. Thank you. So going back to that mindset, when you were first getting into science and technology, all of this science and technology and policy world can seem extremely daunting, even if we have some background of either science and tech or policy. 
Would you mind walking us through some of the early challenges you faced or seen some other technologists face when you first started getting into the science and tech policy arena? So I think most technologists just really don't know where to plug in. I think science and tech policy spans a wide breadth, and there are so many subtopics uh, such as like foreign policy, international development, climate policy, defense policy, research and development policy, biotech policy. There's just so many areas you can go into. Um, And, you know, first and foremost, like if you're, let's say, a Silicon Valley engineer, uh, that whole world is just unfamiliar to you. Uh, You don't even know who to really talk to to even learn more about the space. Um, and, And then there's also the unfamiliarity with how how government actually works. Most folks don't even know what agencies oversee things like health research or vaccines or uh, climate policy or data privacy policy. And that's that's because there's a certain learning curve to, to knowing how the government works and what the role of uh, each entity is. And I was only able to overcome that curve because I spent, I, I spent 40 plus hours thinking about science and tech policy. It's my job. And most people don't get that luxury, especially if you're, you know, immersed in the world of tech. Um, and so I also see an, the, there was also another problem. There, the problem was that there isn't much of a space for young technologists to congregate, to find others like them. And I think one of my challenges um, just being in the science and tech space was that uh, I couldn't find a, a good uh, you know, squad of individuals who spent t- their time at the intersection like I did. There wasn't no, e- there wasn't any easy networking function there. And another challenge that I faced as someone coming from uh, science was finding a space that blended everything that I was uh, interested in. You know, I wanted to be both immersed in in the technical world and the non-technical world, and finding that perfect blend. Uh, is quite hard, and I find I find myself very lucky to be at day one where I can uh, do both those things. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that science and tech policy as a career is not well fleshed out at all. Um, it's not a, it's not a thing people know about. Um, it's 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 very unlike advancing the tech promotion ladder or going into consulting or doing eye banking. Like there are established tracks for those, but such a thing does not uh, such a thing does not exist in science and tech policy, um, which makes it hard for people to to really plug in. Um, but I mean, at the same time, that also means that there's a lot to there's a lot of institution building to do, which is I guess the silver lining of it all. I think what Sosa is saying is is really true from a lot of the technologists I've had the chance to speak with both in and outside of my work. And, you know, he's actually been organizing a community for technologists to meet and discuss these issues, solving exactly that problem. Um, And he might be too humble to plug, so I'll do it on his behalf. So you should really follow up with him. Um, But, you know, broadly speaking, I relate to what Sosa is saying. The S&T policy career is not well fleshed out. And it's incredibly hard to break into the walled gardens of different think tanks or policy communities across D.C., especially as it relates to science and tech, and especially if you don't have much technical expertise, which is kind of where I was coming at it from. Um, 
had mentioned in my last year of college, you know, doing a lot of research on tech and geopolitics and even getting some of it published. And so I knew I wanted to do tech issues before going to law school, but it seemed like the only career path going forward was, you know, getting lucky at a nonprofit by being a paralegal. That didn't really seem too appealing. And I had no technical expertise and felt really worried about that. I spent a lot of time trying to learn how to code. And then I quickly realized that you lose those skills unless you give yourself a reason or a mission to apply them. So I wasn't building apps or a program. And even though I learned most of the basics, it wasn't the best use of my time. Um, fortunately, you know, there's a lot of fellowships out there and there's a lot of other avenues that I would encourage you to you know, look into if this sounds like you. But turns out you don't really need to have the most technical background to run into these things. It took me a while to feel confident about that. I often felt like the imposter and would try to read every single thing I could find under the sun. Um, you know, that was a really informative and engaging process, but it was totally unsustainable. And that's really the other dimension of breaking into the S&T world is just, just the sheer amount of information that different communities are writing about. And it's hard to stay at the cutting edge of that. One piece of advice I would have uh, or I would offer up is, you know, to sign up for newsletters. That really does a good job of, of framing the conversation that's happening. Um, but the other and probably the one I most relate to is, um, you know, technology touches, touches on a lot of issues, broadly speaking. So I would suggest taking the issues you already care about and mapping out the nexus to tech. For me, that was human rights at home and abroad, which led me to map the issue of an unregulated global surveillance industry as a window into opening transparency and oversight into the broader criminal justice system at home, and then tying that as a model to support an effective foreign policy strategy that leads by example abroad. I think you know, learning how with my interest in criminal justice at home and foreign policy abroad and learning how to tie those things at a nexus with tech made me feel like I was really you know, making the right career move going forward and breaking into this, this space. Awesome. And it seems from my understanding that the Day One Project is an organization that tries to solve some of these challenges you mentioned and ease people into creating actionable science and tech policy to inform the administration with important S&T policy ideas. So could you tell us a bit more about the Day One Project, how it got started, and what you guys do there now? So we launched the Day One Project in January 2020 with the vision of publishing 100 actionable ideas by day one of the next administration. Um, and we met that goal. Uh, and one, the reason we had that goal is because the science and technology community possesses like, really novel ideas for federal policy, but they often lack a platform to translate those ideas into action. Uh, and so we, our theory of change is that policy ideas require refining to convert into actionable solutions that policymakers can actually take and implement. Um, and we wanted to get 100 of those uh, you know, refined policy memos by day one so that we could give policymakers a running start. And when uh, we could give policymakers a running start um, at the beginning of you know, the new administration, which is a big moment, a big political moment. Yeah, and so so I think I think what Andrew is touching on is is really important. Um, you know, we've realized that uh, democratizing the policymaking process, which is means finding the best ideas from across the country, um, is really about working with anyone who has an idea. The undergrads, 
tenured professors, activists, entrepreneurs, and working workshopping that into a roadmap for policymakers. So Andrew had mentioned that you know our goal was to get a hundred ideas by day one of the administration. Um, I'm really proud to say we're over 180. We have over 180 proposals uh, now in our library since day since day one. Um, and and now the way we like to think about uh, our mission is, you know, each of these proposals is providing a roadmap for policymakers to act on day one of implementing the policy idea. And so, what do we do there now? Well, part of it's sourcing policy ideas from the broader community. A lot of it's developing and refining those ideas into something that could actually make sense to a policymaker, as well as, you know, a huge, I would say the other half of the day one project is running the talent hub, which, you know, uncovers flexible pathways for technologists and subject matter experts to enter government at high positions of leverage to introduce change. I think our second theory of change is that people are policy, and that's really where we're driving hard um, to, to make change happen. So could you touch a bit more on, you mentioned what makes a policy idea good? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So um, there's a lot. And that's that's kind of the, the whole genesis of, of the project is that, um, you know, oftentimes when policymakers receive ideas, they are just told, you know, you should really prioritize this issue. They're not told how to do so. They're not really. There's. It's not really explicit of who are the actors that are involved, or you know, is the government even the right person here to so to be the the solution agent? Um, so there's a lot to think about. You know, a better understanding of the problem. You know, is there a market failure? Uh, how might the government be able to build and create solutions that are effective and useful? Um, has the idea been tried before? Oftentimes, that's a huge component that de-risks an idea for a policymaker. Um, and so thinking about concretely what makes it easy for someone who is in a position of leverage, what are their needs, is something we really try to emphasize in being responsive to customer demand. And our customers are policymakers, decision makers, both in Congress, but also largely in the, in the executive branch. Um, you know, for those out there who are, are looking to create an idea, probably the best advice I would give you is to avoid creating a plan for a plan, which kind of touches on a lot of what I've been saying. But the central ethos of this is, you know, policymakers don't like to do a lot of thinking on their own. So we should be able to provide the detail ahead of time so that, you know, as I said, on day one, they have a specific roadmap. Don't just tell them to prioritize an issue, tell them how to prioritize the issue. So now that we know what makes a policy idea good, how do we how do you guys source out these wonderfully thought out policy ideas? Right. So um, I think now we've worked with over, I'd say over much more than 300 contributors in, since since January 2020 in de designing our, our nonpartisan portfolio of ideas. Um, and we've done that through a couple of ways. You know, the one of them is people just send us ideas directly. And that's probably the majority of the ideas that we've cultivated is people contributing on our website through the ideas tab. Um, another is uh, sort of tapping our broader in-house network or in the broader day one community for different ideas on things that people might be working on both in and outside of government. And then an another huge one, and one I'd like to highlight right now, is uh, we often run these accelerators. We've just run about four policy accelerators, which the goal is to really work with anyone that has an idea, and it's over a nine-week process, 
where we take that idea and transform it into something that is is actionable. But we also empower the contributors with the right toolkit uh, to take their idea and you know socialize it forward. So that looks like writing you know bottom line upfront statements for emails to congressional staffers or. Uh, what is the right way to give a policy pitch? So all of those kind of happen throughout the accelerator process. Um, and we've worked with anyone from undergrads to tenured professors. And I'm referencing, as Andrew knows, our most recent technology policy accelerator. And so really we try to plant a flag on an issue like tech policy, create thematic issues within that branch, so quantum information science, autonomous vehicles, et cetera, uh, and then try to source ideas from a broader community by tapping different networks and providing the services of workshopping those ideas into something that is useful and workshopping the people into be effective in driving those ideas forward. Awesome. So on the other hand, for a lot of technologists, we might not necessarily think about science and technology policy issues. Um, it may not be always on our mind. Why do you think it's important for technologists to be policy aware? Well, through my experience, I found that science and tech policy, I found that the space is very nascent and that there's an extreme disconnect between technologists and policy. Uh, and if you've ever watched the Facebook hearings or heard the recent Finsta blunder, uh, you know what I mean. And I think that a lot of problems uh, regarding our government and our society um, I, I, I really do mean like a lot of problems in policy suffer from a lack of perspective from technologists. But I think that also means that there is an opportunity for folks like us to meaningfully contribute. Um, and so it's important for technologists to be policy aware because policy touches many aspects of our lives. And so the time calls for our involvement, it calls for our expertise, our perspective, um, and so that's why I think that it's important for technologists to be policy aware. So let's pretend that I'm a technologist who maybe has the start of a policy idea, but still doesn't know exactly what I need to do, or I have some technical skills or IT skills, and I want to use it to help the government. But again, not exactly sure where to start and really put my foot on the pedal. Well, I would say first things first, just come share your idea for action with us. Um, and, you know, if you don't have an idea, help others champion their ideas. Uh, I think you can start by just getting, involving yourself in conversations, get to know the policy ecosystem, figure out what you're passionate about and what your vision is for a better world. If you start there, um, you should be able to map out a policy solution. So now that we have a ton of enthusiastic listeners and technologists who are jumping to get into science and tech policy, what are some things that you want people who are new to the policy world to watch out for and to think of as they're getting there, uh, as they're stepping into this world? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think one we'd mentioned a little bit earlier is avoiding a plan for a plan. Um, you know, when you're thinking about a problem, it's really important to be able to define the nature of the problem, but also like how specific can you get in terms of designing a solution. So, you know, ways you can do that are looking at org charts, organizational charts at different government agencies to find out, you know, what and who are the people leading specific initiatives. So when you're crafting an idea, you're able to map it on to key agencies, but more specifically, even the right person. Doing that work up front helps you really 
I guess, think about who are the right people to share your idea with on the back end as well. Um, I think there's other things that you can do. Uh, one is we'd mentioned reading, signing up for different policy tech newsletters that kind of frame the conversation, the nexus on issues that you already care about, but now with a policy lens that helps show you who are the right committees in Congress that are working on these issues, who are the right agencies leading particular issues as well. Um, I think another thing that is really important in the policy world to watch out for is uh, you know, reading op-eds as if they're the end-all be-all on an issue. Uh, oftentimes, they oversimplify things. So it's really important to do the heavy work on reading the longer form analysis. The flip side of that is, you know, spending a lot of time writing really long analysis without attention to understanding how to make that short and actionable. You kind of have to do both, which is the real hard work and, and stuff that we strive to do here at the Day One Project. But the idea is that, you know, policymakers don't have a lot of time. So how can you synthesize the most important elements of your research, of your analysis, and crafting the right frame going forward. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with everything that you just said, Ishan. Um, one of the things I would also highlight for people is um, the digital core. So the Biden administration recently recently announced um, a digital the digital core, which is a collaboration between uh, a bunch of the agencies uh, in in the government. And the digital core is a new two year fellowship that will recruit early career technologists to contribute to high-impact efforts across the federal government. Uh, there hasn't been a program like this before, uh, and this program will work to advance the administration priorities of things like the coronavirus response, economic recovery, cybersecurity, and streamlining government services. Um, and so definitely, if you're looking to do cool public interest work, have that on your radar. Yeah, it's like you know AmeriCorps, but for tech. And I think it's you get to do a lot higher impact stuff uh, in this field. Yeah. And I talked earlier about how there really isn't much of a space for uh, technologists, especially young technologists, to congregate. Um, one of the things I've been working on is building a network of public interest technologists. Um, and so if anybody listening wants to help me build that, I'm all ears. You know, just feel free to call, contact me. One thing I want to add also to that is um, I know public interest technologists or civic technologists or whatever can end up getting a bad rap for being boring. Um, you know, one of our, our colleagues at the Day One Project had mentioned, you know, it's absolutely the opposite of, of boring. Um, you know, you can spend weeks trying to improve how fast Uber's app opens by 0.3 seconds, or you could design child welfare analysis to track kids across foster home care and so many other cross-cutting impacts at the state and local level as well as the federal level to really introduce impact and apply your technological skills to really introducing tangible good in the world. Um, that's just something to think about going forward. And the reason why something like the digital core is really awesome, um, as well as just raising your hand to serve in your own communities, um, at your state and local government, at, your, at the federal government. Yeah, to add on to that, the I mean, there I think people just aren't as aware of how many interesting things are happening in public interest tech, um, and there is certainly there are certainly ways to use technology in an intentional and beneficial way that positively impacts people's lives and, and tackles some of the biggest challenges that face our society as a whole, um, and so this is like people who build contract tracing apps. 
uh, people who build tech for immigrants to easily to more easily navigate the visa process or building tech that makes it easier to know your rights or to get your unemployment benefits. There are so many interesting challenges that you get to work on as a, a public interest technologist um, that I think people just aren't aware of. Awesome. Are there any examples of policy at the Day One project that really made you proud of what you've built or that really provide a great example of what can happen when a technologist um, starts to really get into the public interest world and start combining some of those skills together to try and do something good? Yeah, I can start. Um, One is, as we were mentioning, the digital core. Um, This is an idea that uh, Chris Kwong, who is a technologist, uh, was a contributor to the project, uh, working with someone in our community, uh, Nick Sinai, um, who has had you know years of experience in the federal government, um, and it was this really sweet blend uh, around an issue that they then socialized within government and kept driving progress on the issue going forward uh, to really make this come to life. Um, and so it was really cool to see. The, from the start of this idea into the establishment and announcement of a formal program, um, which is why we're really plugging this so hard here. Um, but Andrew, I think you might have another. Um, yeah. Uh, I think one really cool policy uh, prescription that I worked on was electrifying uh, regional airports from regional airports across America. Um, and so I had, and maybe in late spring, I had someone approach me with the idea, like, we should just electrify everything. We should electrify all 5,000 regional airports across America to eradicate lead poisoning and, and achieve decarbonization faster and create more green jobs. Uh, idea was great. Um, and you know, we worked on the idea, we developed it into a policy proposal then we, that we then shipped out on our day one platform and shipped out to policymakers. And just last month, or maybe it was August, you know, the White House released a fact sheet on sustainable aviation. Um, and a lot of the um, recommendations that we put forth in, in our policy proposal were present on that fact sheet. And so I'm really proud of that. Awesome. I think for a lot of people in sort of our generation, just in college or coming out of college, there seems to be a lot of disheartenment and like you feel like you can't really affect policy or you want to try and change something, but you can't really do that. So what sort of advice would you give people um, if they're just starting out here or maybe even if they are just coming up with some ideas and maybe some of them don't land at first. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I definitely grew up uh, and my parents were very concerned about me being interested in policy because of that exact issue. You know, countries polarized, Congress doesn't get much done. How do we move forward? Are you sure this is something you want to do? Um, one of the things that was really nice in coming to the Day One Project was learning that there is con- Congress and then there's a whole other side to how government operates, which is the executive branch. There is a lot of input and understaffing, so the need for input is really important in the executive branch to be able to provide insights on, for example, how should regional tech innovation hubs be stood up um, from the Department of Commerce, or 
how should NSF's regional innovation programs be developed? Um, and so the coolest part from our perch and the stuff that I want other people to know about is, you know, there is room for having input in how the government builds out certain efforts. There's, of course, constitutionally required jurisdictions on what Congress can do and the executive branch can do. But in between that is a huge swath of, a, of chance to really change how the world works. Um, the other thing, as I was mentioning earlier, is that at the state and local level, there's a lot of impact you can have. You know, most state and local governments just do not have the technological capacity let alone the federal government. I mean, there's what, like 3% of the federal tech IT, work, IT workforce is over the age, or yeah, under the age of 30. So it's just like a ridiculous number to have. Um, so the chance to really get involved is really strong. The chance to share your ideas, especially with the executive branch, is really strong. And if those resonate with you, I really encourage you to reach out because I think we're our, the tradecraft we've honed is figuring out the right pathways to support you in sharing those ideas going forward. So touching on what you said about helping out at the local and state level, I think for a lot of people who have been trained with sort of a tech mindset, we're always thinking about how can we build things at scale? How can we make this not just for our city, but for the entire country? Um, what would you sort of say about that in terms of when we're thinking about how to make an impact on the policy level? So that's a really great question. Um, I think I want to answer it with an example, uh, which involves broadband. So how do we scale efforts uh, for broadband at the state and local level to the national level? That's really one of the main concerns we'd been hearing from leadership at the NTIA, National Telecommunications and Information Administration. The reason why is because NTIA received billions of dollars through Biden's infrastructure bill, the American Jobs Plan, uh, to allocate funding to expand affordable broadband access. But most of that funding is just running through NTIA to states. And so NTIA doesn't have a lot of leverage to dictate who is funded in terms of providing that access, meaning that often at the state and local level, you have, or really what we're gearing towards, is significant capture by incumbent service providers over how to how that money is spent. And so while a lot of that while a portion of that money is going to standing up state broadband offices at the state and local level, um, you know, there isn't really an effective strategy for identifying use cases or model examples of new ways of providing broadband and more affordable ways of providing broadband that reach the edges of communities. And so we'd heard from the NTIA, you know, it'd be really great if there were these pilot use cases at the state and local level uh, that we could then, you know, really highlight at the federal leadership to expand across the nation so that, you know, other states are able to adopt these types of practices and we can really end up meeting the goal of highly scaled and affordable broadband access. Yeah, I would say uh, totally. The, I mean, one, I think local and, and state politics or you know, policy rather is is closer to a lot of our lives than than federal policy uh, on average. And so, I would definitely invite people to uh, become more involved uh, on that stage of policy, on that on that on that level of policy. But uh, to echo Ishan, certainly, I mean, the it's not like policy happens in a bubble. It's not like local policy is totally isolated from federal policy. It's not like state policy has no effect 
on, it's not like state policy has no effect on federal policy. Um, all three levels talk to each other. They pass information from uh, one to another. And so that means best practices are learned. And so we've especially seen this with data privacy. California was a, or is a leader in data privacy regulation, um, data privacy legislation, and they've seen some of their uh, legislation copied across states and make it into draft legislation for uh, federal privacy laws. Uh, and so that's to say that that local and, and, and state politics or state policy does not emerge in a bubble. There, there are ripple effects, and those ripple effects can be quite large and affect a lot of people. So something that's really interesting that's happening at the regional level or state and local level is this conversation about spreading regional innovation. Um, and so what we're seeing in a lot of the bills being considered in Congress, such as the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, is this emphasis of spreading our R&D capacities away from Boston and San Francisco and into the heartland as a way to drive economic development and really provide for a lot of the communities that have been forgotten in the 21st century digital economy. And so I would say that you know, participating in the state and local level is really helpful because there's a lot more opportunities that are going to be stood up in our lifetimes uh, that you know, hopefully do things like reduce polarization as we have more ecosystems that happen for, our, for the cutting edge R&D in the bioeconomy or semiconductor industries in you know, Ohio or Arkansas. Um, there's a lot of potential for these institutes that are being considered in, in terms of being stood up uh, that, that I'm really excited for and that also make you know, engaging at the local level a lot more impactful on the national level. So on the flip side, have you seen any policies or proposals that have passed or gotten some leverage where you really wish that there was a technologist there to add some input or provide some insight? Definitely crypto. Um, I've been following uh, you know, blockchain news, blockchain technology for a while. Um, and I think that the conversation between uh, the crypto industry and policymakers on the Hill and in places like the SEC, IRS, um, could really benefit from uh, just tech perspective from more technologists. And I believe that blockchain technology is, is very, very, very complicated, um, at least the underpinnings of it. I think the concept is, is quite, you know, not too hard for people to understand, but I think the intricacies of it, especially as they relate to what regulations should be uh, established is an issue that I think technologists could meaningfully contribute to. I think another example is the privacy conversation uh, with a lot of developments being made at federated learning and differential privacy techniques that could provide uh, technical solutions to a lot of issues in terms of processing data, um, in terms of data retention. Um, I think another sort of related example is uh, that happens within law enforcement is this idea of we need to have like a collected all mentality. And so we just collect all the data through all the sensors that we possibly can. And it ends up being really ineffective. And the systems themselves are really ineffective to be able to process and collate all of the data. And so 
Um, you know, you have something like the January 6th riots or even, you know, other mass shooters where you have alarm bells going off in the FBI and DHS, et cetera, at these fusion centers, but you don't have an effective mechanism to process that data. And so no one's really listening to it. I wish, you know, I'm sure there were technologists that were involved, but I wish that there was someone who was, you know, involved in the, at, at least at the level at which deciding that this isn't the right system architecture. Maybe a better one is maybe having more uh, d limited data retention frameworks, et cetera, to be able to, you know, have a better system operate. And what motivates you both to stay involved in this science and technology policy space and to keep pushing for um, more change for more democratized processes. So I think I was touching on um, sort of the regional conversation happening. And I think that's that's a microcosm of a broader piece of this whole puzzle, which is that uh, we're living in a moment where uh, government R&D, investments in technology, et cetera, has fallen to historic lows. And the government is just now realizing that and is making moves to correct that. So there's an immense amount of potential within the science and technology space in terms of government investment, standing up new programs like ARPA-H um, that live off the legacies of really exciting ways of doing R&D. Um, and so I think there's you know, a real potential uh, within our lifetimes to see the government you know, being a much more effective source of public-private partnerships with industry, leveraging those capabilities to make the world a better place. I think broadband is a really good example of that. Um, I think housing is another good example of that. And so, um, you know, one of the ideas that came out of our project is, you know, what if we shifted the Department of Education's so, like approach to tackling massive educational equities, inequities, sorry, um, to an R&D approach that really investigates, you know, what are the gaps here, the learning gaps? How can we leverage data to understand where are students falling behind? And then also designing new and effective curriculums that meet the needs of all students, black, white, you know, et cetera. Like it's, there's a lot of potential to leverage advancements in artificial intelligence today that if done right, and they can also be done wrong, but if done right, can introduce real impact that makes us all feel good about the country we live in. For me, I see that there's two parts to it. One, um, just the stuff happening in, in, in science and tech policy is utterly fascinating. So think about life-saving vaccines, carbon-sucking trash cans, uh, electric airplanes, uh, ridiculously fast computer chips that are the size of bugs, or even smaller than the size of bugs. Um, I Just as a scientist, like everything happening in the space is just so interesting to me. Um, and the other side of it is that policy, if anything, it's one of the biggest, if not the most, the most, or policy is, is one of the most impactful levers of change. Um, and being able to uh, influence such, you know, impactful decisions is, you know, it's an honor. Uh, it's it's fulfilling. It's 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 invigorating. The solutions that Ishan and I come up with, having those be implemented and realized, and seeing them help a lot of people. Um, I think that's one of the best gifts ever. I think one more thing I want to add um, is that there, 
is so much work to be done um, in shaping the future of how this tech develops and influences society. Um, you know, I'm sure the audience is pretty familiar with the idea that the internet was viewed as this democratizing force for good, and that you know we've learned in recently, uh, whether it's disinformation or something entirely else, that tech itself is not inevitably good, and there has to be some sort of regulation or way of guiding it. And so the thing that I th spend a lot of time thinking about is that in the next 10 years or so, and it's an open question of the exact timeline, but the second half of the world is going to gain access to the internet. That is an immense moment for humanity. I mean, think of what is possible when every single person across the globe is connected to a digital economy. At the same time, you know, those people are the very same people already living on the fringes of society. And so the potential for abuse from ecosystems of power is tremendous. And so, you know, that's something that could get a lot worse, whether that's more ethnicity-specific algorithms, like the ones we saw in Xinjiang, spreading as like part of a normal market force and a way to not necessarily be able to regulate that industry. Um, is part of the reason why I'm really involved in the surveillance tech space, is creating a new way to design alternatives or market-oriented approaches that are solutions, rather than just saying we should ban every, every tech. I know you have um, someone from the Stop LAP LAPD Spying Coalition coming on soon. Um, so I think that's a really important conversation, and it's really, uh, it's really valuable to, to platform those ideas. Um, but I would push those audiences to think more concretely about, you know, the United States is not the only supplier of this tech, and how do we design an ecosystem at the international stage to be able to combat these issues for a more equitable future for everyone? Uh, those are really tough questions to answer, but one I wanted to bring up here. Thank you, and I think this gives our audience a lot to think about and a lot for us to think about how we can use our future to do something good or that helps improve the world for not just ourselves, but everyone around us. Um, so finally, how can someone get involved with the Day One project? Where do we go? Where do we click? What should we do next? So super simple, um, www.dayoneproject.org. Um, our landing page is pretty self-explanatory. Um, if you go to our ideas tab, you can contribute your ideas directly there. You can also email us. Um, my email is isharma at fas.org. Uh, Andrew at dayone.org. And so feel free to reach out to us directly, but I think the website should be pretty self-explanatory. Um, and there's, you know, we're always looking for ideas. We're always looking to work with new folks, especially in our brand to democratize the policymaking process. So happy to work on, on whatever front that works for you. Well, Ishan Sosa, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. So you heard it, folks. If you're interested in the Day One Project, take a look at the Day One Project website, dayoneproject.org. The Day One Project has information on their talent hub, their accelerator program, a forum where you can submit your s policy ideas, and so much more. If you're interested in working with our speakers, perhaps with SOSA on creating a public interest tech community, or anything else, please reach out to them. We'll have a link to the website and our guest contact info on our show notes at bitesofgood.org slash podcast. The show notes will also include a list of fellowships like the Digital Court, suggested next steps, and additional resources. We also have a Discord linked in our show description. Join us! It's a great place to give direct feedback and to find community and support as you explore the space of public interest tech or tech for social good. Thanks, and see you next time!